Welcome to Last Month at the Federal Circuit. In this extension of the Finnegan podcast, attorneys from Finnegan will examine recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Dory Hines joins us now to take a closer look at two cases. The first looks at how district courts should approach the issue of patentability, and the second examines whether patents can be ruled invalid based on prior sales activity of the patentee. Dory, in Atrix Software versus Green Shade Software, the Federal Circuit reversed a district court decision on patent eligibility, stating that the lower court erroneously applied the Supreme Court's Alice test. Tell us about the key issues in the case and the majority decision. The Atrix decision just issued in February addressed an appeal of a dismissal under Rule 12b-6, finding that the claims at that very early stage were invalid under Section 101. And before getting to the details of the court's analysis, just a little bit about the patents and the claims. Here, the invention related to data from third-party applications in a data file, importing that data into a form file, and then putting that into a viewer so that a user could take the data from the data file and put it into a form and manipulate and show on a screen a representation of a form. So it was how to fill out forms with data from third-party applications. And the district court was considering whether those claims were patent-eligible subject matter under Section 101. The district court considered a representative claim, which is typical, considered claim one, the only independent claim, and found that claim and all of the dependent claims to be invalid under Section 101, saying they were directed to an abstract idea and a fundamental human activity that could be performed on pen and paper. After that decision by the district court, the patentee moved to modify and vacate the judgment and also moved for leave to amend the complaint and for reconsideration. Importantly, the motion to amend the complaint was denied by the district court, and then the Federal Circuit considered the issues on appeal. Now, the decision here was issued by Judge Moore. She was the majority and author judge, joined by Judge Toronto. And there's a dissent, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, issued by Judge Reyna. Now, the Federal Circuit, in looking at these issues, decided two separate related issues, but separately. First, the court looked at the only independent claim and held that it was directed to a tangible system. The district court had held otherwise, saying that it was essentially directed to a data structure, which the Federal Circuit has in the past held non-eligible subject matter. And the Federal Circuit quickly dispensed with that issue and said, it is a system claim, the claim is directed to a data processing system, and reversed the district court fairly quickly. The thrust of the decision is the Alice-Mayo analysis of certain of the dependent claims, and particularly step two of the Alice-Mayo analysis, and whether the claims reside an inventive concept. The focus of the Federal Circuit was the district court's refusal to allow the patentee to file a second amended complaint. And there are reasons that amended complaints and a patentee's motion to move to amend the complaint can be denied. And one of them is whether the amendment would be futile. And that was the focus of the Federal Circuit in its decision. And what the Federal Circuit looked at were the allegations in that second amended complaint, saying at a minimum they raised factual disputes as to whether a particular claim term, data file, 
constituted an inventive concept. And looking and drilling down a little bit more detail on that, in the second amended complaint, the patentee addressed development of the invention and certain problems in the prior art and alleged that there were improvements and problems solved by the invention. The Federal Circuit and Judge Moore in the majority opinion said, those allegations claim that the data file is directed to an improvement to the prior art. Secondly, the allegations in the amended complaint addressed that the invention increased efficiencies of computer processing steps. And the court said, those allegations suggest that the claims are directed to an improvement in computer technology itself, and they're not directed to generic components or performing conventional activities. So the court there was looking at cases like DDR and ENFISH and saying the allegations in the complaint were like the inventions recited there, and the analysis there should apply that there was an inventive concept. So at the Rule 12b6 stage, the Federal Circuit said, those allegations, if accepted as true, which is the standard, contradict the district court's conclusion. And thus, it was an abuse of discretion to deny the motion for leave to amend at that early stage. What does the decision tell us about the evolution of the law on Section 101? Well, here, the court's looking at Section 101. Section 101, as the court has held repeatedly, is a question of law. The focus here in this decision, and in some other decisions that have recently issued, is there may be subsidiary fact questions in the Section 101 analysis. And that's the importance of the evolution of the law, or apparent evolution of the law, that this decision points out. And the majority opinion relies on Mayo. And the statement in Mayo that if the claim elements involve well-understood, routine, conventional activity, they do not constitute an inventive concept. Flipping that around, the Federal Circuit in Atrix says whether claim elements are well-understood, routine, and conventional is a question of fact. And at the 12B6 stage, that question of fact cannot be answered adversely to the patentee based on what should be considered at the Rule 12B6 stage. And the Federal Circuit identifies the the things that should be considered at the motion to dismiss stage as the patent, the complaint, and also a third category of materials subject to judicial notice. The opinion here does not elaborate on what those materials are, but certainly that will be addressed in future cases. The second issue of law that the Federal Circuit addressed but did not decide here is, is claim construction required at the Rule 12b6 stage, at the motion to dismiss stage? And the court suggested that it was, but said that its ruling makes it unnecessary to decide whether the district court erred by ruling on the Section 101 motion to dismiss before claim construction. The majority opinion adds that the briefing and argument on appeal demonstrate a need for claim construction to be conducted on remand. So there is no independent basis for reversal that claim construction wasn't performed, but the Federal Circuit essentially told the district court that on remand, claim construction should be performed at the Rule 12b6 stage. Dory, what was the dissenting opinion and how did it differ from the majority? Judge Reyna issued the dissenting opinion. 
He agreed that the district court's decision should be vacated and the appeal remanded. He would decide on the first issue alone, that is, whether claim one, the independent claim, was directed to a tangible system. He agreed that it was, and on that basis alone, would vacate the district court's decision and remand to the district court. Now, where Judge Reyna disagreed was the majority's decision on the other claims, and there were two reasons he did. Judge Reyna was of the opinion that the majority opinion shifts the 101 inquiry from a legal question to a factual question. And there were some risks associated with that, according to Judge Reyna. One was allowing what he called an inexhaustible array of extrinsic evidence to be part of the motion to dismiss inquiry. That would include prior art and expert declarations. And he identified a second danger of requiring claim construction at the early stage. Judge Reyna's view is that the Section 101 inquiry at the motion to dismiss stage should focus on the question of law and not include factual issues that could be raised by extrinsic evidence or issues of claim construction. Judge Reyna also warned of the effect of this ruling, and that is that a patentee could amend the complaint and that factual allegations must be accepted as true. And the problem he articulated was that the motion to dismiss under Rule 12b-6 would become a full-blown factual inquiry, just like Section 102 and considering prior art and anticipation, Section 103, considering obviousness, and Section 112. The second problem that Judge Reyna had in his dissent was the posture of the case and that, in his view, it did not support the opinion. Judge Reyna said that the majority should not have considered the allegations in the second amended complaint because the motion to amend was denied. So the posture of the case was that the Federal Circuit should have considered only the first amended complaint because that was the operative complaint at the time, and the majority opinion considered the second amended complaint, which was not. Now, in response to that, Judge Moore was considering, and the majority was considering, whether it would be futile to allow that amendment in the second amended complaint. Judge Reyna considered that to be improper. What are some other examples of how the Federal Circuit has been analyzing this issue, and where do you see it going moving forward? Well, there are two cases that have issued right around the same time as the Atrix decision. The first is the Berkheimer case, just before the Atrix decision, issued on February 8th. Again, Judge Moore was the author judge in that case, who's joined in that case by Judges Toronto and Stoll. And there, instead of a motion to dismiss at the very early stage of the case, the Federal Circuit considered whether the district court properly granted summary judgment of invalidity under Section 101. And like the Atrix case, Berkheimer dealt with the question of whether fact issues preclude the grant of judgment. There it was summary judgment as opposed to uh, a judgment on a motion to dismiss. Now, as with Atrix, the focus in Berkheimer was on step two, whether there was an inventive concept, and in particular, whether the claims involve more than the performance of well-understood routine and conventional activities. The court in Berkheimer said that question is a question of fact, and that fact must be proven by the challenger by clear and convincing evidence. Now there, in the Berkheimer decision, the court looked at um, a number of claims. Claim one was the only independent claim, and the Federal Circuit said claim one and certain of the dependent claims were properly held invalid on summary judgment under Section 101. So the issue became certain of the dependent claims 
and whether those claims, four through seven, contained limitations to what the specification described as the inventive concept. And so the Federal Circuit looked at the specification and its statements that the claim elements improve the operating efficiency of the computer and reduce storage costs, and further statements in the specification that those features were not known in the prior art. It's important to note to folks who do patent drafting and prosecution that those statements in the specification were considered important in the summary judgment analysis and whether those statements raised questions of fact that would preclude summary judgment. And that's exactly what the Federal Circuit held. There were genuine issues of fact precluding summary judgment. One other takeaway here is that the patentee in Berkheimer did not agree that claim one, the only independent claim, was representative. They continued to argue that it was not representative and argue that there were differences in the dependent claims. And that was critical. Oftentimes, cases on 101 seem to stand or fall on a single claim that is deemed to be representative, that there are not arguments made with respect to either other independent claims or, importantly here, other dependent claims. And the third decision in this trilogy is the Exergen case issued March 8th. It is a non-precedential decision. Again, the author judge is Judge Moore. Here she was joined by Judge Bryson, and there's a dissent by Judge Hughes. Now, if we're looking at the stage of the case where this issue of validity under Section 101 is decided, the Exergen case comes later in time. Atrix was at the early stage of the motion to dismiss, Berkheimer on summary judgment. Exergen addresses the issue post-trial and whether or not the district court correctly denied judgment as a matter of law that the claims were invalid under Section 101. And here, the Federal Circuit affirmed that denial. So the affirmed the post-trial conclusion of the court that the claims were directed to patent-eligible subject matter. And here, the majority opinion, Judge Moore, found that the district court's conclusion that the claim elements were not well understood, routine, or conventional was a question of fact. And as a question of fact, the court on appeal, the appellate court, had to give that finding deference for clear error on review. So we see through these three cases the focus on this issue of whether a claim element or certain claim elements are well understood, routine, or conventional as a question of fact and what patentees can and should present as evidence of that question of fact throughout the proceeding of a case, either on a motion to dismiss, in allegations in a complaint, or an amended complaint, in Berkheimer, in opposing summary judgment, and then in Exergen, in defeating or looking to defeat a post-trial motion as a matter of law. Now, in Exergen, there was a dissent. The dissent concluded that the claims were directed to calculating a law of nature and that the claims began and ended with a law of nature and nothing else should have been considered. So there was a dissent there. But clearly, though, this trilogy of cases demonstrates focus on fact questions and subsidiary fact questions to the Section 101 analysis. In another district court reversal, the Federal Circuit vacated a decision in the Medicines Company versus Hospira. 
The case dealt directly with the on-sale bar. What are the specifics of this case? Well, the medicines company, this isn't their first time up to the federal circuit or the first time that the federal circuit has considered the on-sale bar with respect to the medicines company. This was another round of misdispute. And this time, the court considered whether a distribution agreement in 2007 between the medicines companies or TMC and a company called Integrated Commercial Solutions, or ICS, was an on-sale bar. And what was the barring activity that led the court to find the patent invalid? Well, the barring activity in the second round of the TMC case was this particular distribution agreement and the terms of that distribution agreement. Now, the district court said there was no on-sale bar because the agreement between the medicines company and ICS was only for ICS to become a U.S. distributor. It wasn't an offer to sell. And the Federal Circuit disagreed with that and said the terms of the agreement make clear that the medicines company and ICS entered an agreement to purchase and sell product. And they looked at the specific provisions of the agreement. First, there's a provision that TMC, the medicines company, desired to sell product. Second, ICS desired to purchase and distribute the product, and the agreement included the price of the product. Now, TMC argued there was no sale or offer for sale because it could reject purchase orders from ICS. The Federal Circuit disagreed with that and said the distribution agreement required TMC to use commercially reasonable efforts to fill orders. So read as a whole, even though TMC in theory could reject purchase orders, the agreement considered as a whole required TMC to fill orders unless it was commercially unfeasible to do so. Plus, and this was an important consideration for the Federal Circuit, title of the product passed to ICS. And the Federal Circuit said this is an indicator that the product was subject to an offer for sale. The Federal Circuit also noted this was a change in the relationship between the parties. Now, earlier, ICS had had a distribution agreement with the medicines company, but title did not pass. And title passed to the product in the new and revised distribution agreement. And this was significant. And finally, Dory, how does this case compare and contrast to earlier medicines company decisions? In the earlier M-Bank decision, the Federal Circuit considered a contract manufacturer, Benvenue, and its agreement with the medicines company. And in that M-Bank decision, held that that agreement was not an on-sale bar. And the differences were, with the contract manufacturer, Benvenue, the invoices were for manufacturing services. They were not for product itself. TMC paid Benvenue, but only paid it about 1% of the value of the product. And that was because what the medicines company was paying Benvenue for was contract manufacturing services. It was not paying for product itself. Third, in the agreement with Benvenue, title of the product did not pass. That is, the medicines company still retained title to the product, even though Benvenue was the contract manufacturer. So there are three significant differences. In this later decision, in the distribution agreement with ICS, there was sale of a product, there was a commercial price of the product, and there was transfer of title. Those contrasted with 
the sale of manufacturing services with no commercial price of the product and no transfer of title. So in the medicines company series of cases, we can look at these multiple cases to see on which side of the on-sale bar line these two agreements either cross or do not cross. For the distribution agreement, the Federal Circuit held, there was on-sale bar activity because of the sale of the product, the commercial price, and the transfer of title. That was distinguished from the earlier contract manufacturer agreement addressed in the Embank decision, where none of those things happened. Our guest has been Dory Hines, partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.